morning, Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington. Today is Monday, May the 16th, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. Former Somali leader Hassan Sheikh Mohamud wins the presidency again in a vote by parliamentarians held in an airport hangar in the capital Mogadishu. And in the third round, uh, Hassan Sheikh Mohamud soundly defeated Farmajo 214 against 110 votes. And religious groups and rights activists in Nigeria call for justice after a mob kills a female Christian student for alleged blasphemy. This is not the first time that things like this continue to happen and we have called for thorough and an impartial investigation into um, what truly transpired. And thousands of Tunisian protesters demand a return to democracy and a call for the return to an independent electoral commission. Those stories and sports coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, former Somali leader Hassan Sheikh Mohamud won the presidency again on Sunday in a vote by parliamentarians held in an airport hangar in the capital Mogadishu. Mohamud topped a crowded field of 35 aspirants, including incumbent President Mohamed Abdullahi Famajo and former President Sharif Sheikh Ahmed. The United Nations-backed vote was delayed by over a year due to disagreements in government but had to be held this month to ensure a $400 million international monetary fund program. The vote also took place during Somalia's worst drought in four decades and against the backdrop of attacks by Al-Shabaab rebels, infighting among security forces and clan rivalries. So how did the vote go? And how do we explain that for a country of 17 million people, only members of parliament voted for president? For that, I reached VOA's Somali service senior editor, Harun Marouf. So, Harun, how is it that only members of parliament get to vote for president in Somalia? Well, this is because uh, the Somali leaders have not agreed uh, on election law. They have not agreed on completing the constitution without having a defined election model uh, written on the constitution, uh, it has forced the country to go uh, and hold an indirect election. An indirect election is a process that begins with clan elders who select what we call delegates. The delegates elect lawmakers and the lawmakers elect the president. And that is the process that today led to the re-election of Hassan Sheikh Mohamud, who was previously president between 2012 and 2017. Uh, mm. He defeated the incumbent, Mohamed Abdullahi Farmajo. Uh, it was a rematch of the um, same uh, final round election in 2017 when Farmajo defeated Mohamud. Okay. And, and how did uh, President uh, Farmajo, President Abdullahi Mohammed, who is usually known as uh, Farmajo, uh, how did he do this time around? Did he enjoy any advantages of incumbency? There was a three-round voting. In the first round, Mohammed Abdullahi Farmajo got 59 votes. He came second. He was only beaten by the leader of Puntuland Regional State. Uh, in the second round, 
uh, where top four candidates competed. Uh, Hassan Sheikh Mohammed, the former president, finished first with 110 votes. Farmajo came second again with 83 votes. And uh, uh, the, the president of Puntland came third. And former Prime Minister Hassan Al-Khayre came fourth. But according to the election rules, uh, top two progressed uh, to the third round. And in the third round, uh, Hassan Sheikh Mohammed soundly defeated Farmajo 214 against 110 votes. Mm. And, and what would you say were some of the surprises in the election? The surprises was that uh, the former president, Sharif Sheikh Ahmed, who was expected uh, to reach the final, according to the expert opinions, was eliminated in the first round. The surprising candidates were the president of, of Puntland, who finished top in the first round, and the former prime minister, Hassan Al Khayre, who uh, finished fourth in the first round. That was a surprise. The other surprising was that this election was the closest uh, uh, election we have ever had. Uh, there were only 13 votes separating uh, the top uh, three candidates in the first round. And uh, uh, candidates, uh, the top five candidates, performed unbelievably uh, very competitive and they were very close to each other. That was VOA Somali Service Senior Editor Harun Marouf speaking to me in Washington. And blasts rang out on Sunday in the Mogadishu airport where parliament was meeting to choose Somalia's new leader. The country's police force imposed the weekend lockdown in the capital to maintain security for Sunday's presidential election. The directive required city residents to stay in their homes while vehicles also remain banned from the city streets. Ahmed Mohammed reports from Mogadishu. Somali police force spokesman Abdi Fattah Adan said the pan on pedestrian and vehicle traffic in Mogadishu takes effect Saturday at 9 p.m. and will last until 6 a.m. Monday. He says, recognizing the importance of movement of people and vehicles in Mogadishu, the police force still has to ensure the overall security of the country during the presidential election in the Federal Republic of Somalia. Professor Abdulwahab Abdisamet is the chairman of the Nairobi based Institute for Horn of Africa Strategic Studies. He thinks the lockdown is unnecessary. There is no major threat coming from the outside of Mogadishu, even inside the Mogadishu. And hopefully the public must, you know, follow the instruction of the security, the police and security agents of the country, so that together the police and what they call the public, they can, in fact, they have a responsibility at least, you know, to make sure the safety and security of the entire town. Abdurrahman Sheikh from the Center for Analysis and Strategic Studies in Mogadishu However, Agis, the lockdown is a wise move. The curfew imposed on Mogadishu at this time is valid, he says. The police force has the right to provide security since the security at the polling station was transferred to African Union forces. According to Sheikh, the militant group Ashabab poses a real threat to the elections. Ashabab has mounted 
several attacks in the run-up to the elections. Eleven days ago, the group attacked an African Union base in the middle Chevrolet region, killing at least 30 Burundian soldiers. The group struck again Wednesday, killing at least four people at a checkpoint near the airport where the presidential candidates were addressing the lawmakers. Somali police believe that if the streets of the capital are empty, they can head off any attacks before disaster strikes. Ahmed Mohamed, for VOA News, Mugadishu, Somalia. Debrick Africa continues. Thousands of Tunisians protested on Sunday against President Kais Sayed, demanding a return to the normal democratic order and rejecting his replacement of the independent electoral commission with the one he named himself. Sayed has entrenched his one-man rule since seizing executive power last summer, dismissing parliament and moving to rule by decree and saying that he will replace the democratic constitution through a referendum. And let's go to West Africa in Nigeria, where religious groups and rights activists in the country are calling for justice after a female Christian student was killed by a mob for alleged blasphemy. The student was beaten and burned to death on the premises of a school in northwestern Sokoto State. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja. The Catholic Diocese of Sokoto criticized the attack in a statement Friday and called on state authorities to catch and prosecute the killers. Rights groups like Amnesty International and the Socioeconomic Rights Accountability Project, or SERAP, have also condemned the attack and are demanding justice for the student. Police say two people have so far been arrested in connection with the incident and that they're searching for others who took part in the killing. The incident took place at the Shehu Shagari College of Education in Sokoto State. A mob of students flogged, stoned, and eventually burned Deborah Yakubu to death near the school Thursday. The students accused Yakubu of making blasphemous statements about the Muslim prophet Muhammad during an online argument with classmates. The argument took place during the Muslim Ramadan holiday, but when school resumed Thursday, a group of students attacked Yakubu. Sheung Bakari is an Amnesty International spokesperson. It is not only sad, but um, deeply disturbing because this is not the first time that things like this continue to happen and we have called for thorough and an impartial investigation into um, what truly transpired. And we are hoping that the perpetrators will be brought to book so that it can serve as a deterrent. The Christian Association of Nigeria blames authorities for failing to prevent the attack. Sokoto state authorities have shut down the school indefinitely. Under Nigeria's secular law, blasphemy is punishable by up to two years in prison. But in the more conservative northern region where religious or Sharia law is favored, blasphemy is often treated with stiffer punishments, including a possible death sentence. Last month, a court in northern Kano State sentenced the Nigerian effaced to 24 years in prison for blasphemy. Bakari says both the secular and Sharia laws flout international human rights standards. When compared to international human rights law, none of these laws can stand because international human rights law guarantees the freedom of expression. And Nigeria is a state party to 
other international standards that uphold the freedom of expression. Last November, the U.S. government removed Nigeria from its list of countries that violate religious freedom. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. Human Rights Watch says Cameroonian security forces are not protecting lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and intersex or LGBTI people from violent attacks and are instead arresting the victims. Moki Edwin Kinzeka reports. Human Rights Watch says in a report this week that there has been an uptick in violence and abuse against LGBTI people in Cameroon as authorities continue to arrest and detain LGBTI and suspected LGBTI persons. The report says since March 9, security forces have arbitrarily arrested at least six LGBTI people and detained 11 and that all of those arrested and detained were victims of group attacks for alleged consensual same-sex conduct and gender non-conformity. Officers beat two of them in detention, Human Rights Watch says in the report. Ilaria Allegrozzi is Human Rights Watch Central Africa researcher. She says Cameroon police are failing to protect LGBTI people from mob violence conducting arbitrary arrests and detention, perpetrating violence against LGBTI people and failing to bring perpetrators of mob violence on LGBTI people to book. The law criminalizing same-sex relations, a repressive, draconian, backwards law which does not only violate Cameroon's obligation under national and international law, but also contributes to create a climate of violence, to institutionalize an atmosphere of hate against LGBTI people. And the criminalization of same-sex conduct renders LGBTI people vulnerable to violence at the hands of ordinary citizens as well as law enforcement officials. The Human Rights Watch report says that on April 10, a crowd of about eight men armed with machetes, knives, sticks and wooden planks attacked a group of at least 10 LGBTI people attending a party at a private home in Misasi, a neighborhood in Cameroon's capital, Yaoundé. Human Rights Watch says in the report that a local official took two of the victims to gendarmeries for protection from the mob, but the gendarmes beat and humiliated the LGBTI persons and released them after a $24 bribe was paid. The remaining victims remained in the hands of the violent crowd for at least two hours. Some were injured and their money and phones were seized by the mob, Human Rights Watch says. Sashan Binglo is a solicitor and member of the Cameroon Bar Council and Association of Lawyers. He says abuses on LGBTI people's rights are rampant in Cameroon because the Central African state criminalizes same-sex relations. They would say the law is discriminatory, unfair, but they forget that our laws are founded not just on principles of justice, fairness, equality as obtained globally, but on traditions and cultures peculiar to us. The laws do not permit 
the laws do not accommodate. The laws are against what the LGBTI stand for. Most of them think it's normal to come out on social media, forgetting that they expose themselves to assault and attacks. On state broadcaster CRTV, Cameroonian police denied the Human Rights Watch allegations that they abuse LGBTI persons' rights. The police said they are there to enforce the laws and protect all civilians from violence and brutality. Under Cameroon's penal code, people found guilty of same-sex relations risk up to five years in prison. Human Rights Watch says by criminalizing LGBTI relations, Cameroon not only violates its obligations under national and international law, but condones an atmosphere of violence and hate against LGBTI people. Moki Edwin Kinzaka for VOA News, Yawundi, Cameroon. You're listening to Debrek Africa on The Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vunganyi. In Rwanda, wearing masks to contain COVID-19 is no longer mandatory. The government said Friday it decided to revoke the measure as more than 60% of citizens have been vaccinated. The move comes as the country is putting the final touches on the preparations for the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting next month. Eugene Wimana has more details from Rwanda's capital, Kigali. After three years, Rwandans now can walk without their faces hidden by masks. People in the streets are strolling leisurely, saying it is something they really missed. This man says it's a great relief. People had lost hope and could not imagine that one day the obligatory wearing of masks could be lifted. A decision to lift mask wearing was taken in a cabinet meeting on Friday chaired by Guantanamo President Paul Kagame. But the communique says people who are in overcrowded places may still need to wear masks. However, there are some Rwandans who keep wearing them in open spaces. Speaking to viewers daybreak, they said they are used to it. For them, masks have become an important item of clothing. This man says it is funny that he's still wearing a mask, while others in the street don't wear one. It has become part of the culture. He says he thinks it will take time for him to accept that it's okay not to wear one. Rwanda's move to lift wearing masks is the fulfillment of a promise made by the government last year. It is said when 60% of all people are vaccinated, masks can be lifted. Rwanda's health minister, Daniel Ngamije, spoke with a journalist at a vaccination site in Chigali last year. Our intention is to reach at least 30% of our population which will be vaccinated by the end of this year. And next year, 60% of, of our population, we, we, we expect to, to, to get them vaccinated. So this is our target. And uh, we thank all partners uh, who are coming to join us to, to, to get vaccines available for us. The Minister of Health says at least more than 9 million Rwandans out of 13 million have received one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. The new policy on masks comes as Kigali prepares to host the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in June. The global meeting is expected to bring more than 8,000 people, including the Prince of Wales, Charles, which will be the first ever visit from any of the UK royal family. Ejen Wimana for VOA News, Tigari, Rwanda. The Republic of the Congo experienced two Ebola virus epidemics about 10 years ago. The World Health Organization is now alerting Brazzaville that 
that the country could be susceptible to a new outbreak in Bandaka City in neighboring Democratic Republic of the Congo. Rosie Pioth reports from Brazzaville. The Republic of the Congo shares a long border with the province of Ecuador in the DRC and particularly in the city of Bandaka, which is experiencing an outbreak of Ebola. Authorities are taking measures to avoid importing the disease. Cardeli Ebenga is a citizen of Brazzaville. He still remembers previous epidemic that have killed several people and is appealing to the government. He says that Ebola is as virulent as the coronavirus and the country's leaders have to take responsibility as they did with handling COVID-19. He says that the government must not wait until the disease spreads before taking action and authorities must put in place suitable measures to keep it from reaching the banks of Congo Brazzaville. For VOA Africa, Rosie Piotin Brazzaville. And now it's time for Daybreak Africa Sports. With that, we go to Abuja, Nigeria with Samson O'Malley. Good morning to you, Samson. Good Monday morning to you too, Jackson. We begin the sports with the CAF Confederations Cup, where RS Bakani and Orlando Pirates will meet in the finals of the competition. Yusuf El Fahil scored a late double to send RS Bakani to the final of the CAF Confederations Cup after a 4 1 win over TP Mazembe in Morocco on Sunday. Bakani, champions of the 2019 2020 season, progressed on a 4 2 aggregate score to set up a date against Sarah. Africa's Orlando Pirates and the final which has been confirmed for Uyo, Nigeria. Earlier on Sunday, South African giant Orlando Pirates squeezed into the final despite suffering a 1-0 defeat at home to Libyan outfit Al-Hali Tripoli in Johannesburg. Pirates went through with a 2-1 aggregate win, having won 2-0 in the first leg played in Libya last weekend. Staying with football news, the Nigerian Football Federation on Sunday announced the appointment of Mr. Jose Santos Pizarro as the new head coach of the senior men national team, the Super Eagles. Ademola Olajire, NFF's Director of Communications in a statement on Sunday, said Pizarro's appointment is with immediate effect and subject to the signing of a terms between him and the federation. The NFF also announced that former Nigerian international forward Finiti George will be the first assistant coach to Pissero. Pissero is expected to lead out the Super Eagles for the first time during the upcoming tour of the United States. During the tour, the three-time African champions will slug it out with Mexico and Ecuador. In athletics, Kenya's Irene Cheptai and Nicholas Kipkari Kimeli ran cost records at the World 10 Kilometers Bengalaru 2022, a World Athletics Elite Labour Road Race on Sunday. Chiptai took 44 seconds off the women's cost records, which has stood to the late Agnes Tirop at 31 minutes 19 seconds since 2018 to win the race in 30 minutes 35 seconds. World 5000 meters champion Helen Obiri came in second after timing 30 minutes 44 seconds, while Joyce Telly was third in 31 minutes 47 seconds, making it a Kenyan sweep. In the men's category, Kenyan Nicholas Kipkori won the race in 27 minutes. 
38 seconds ahead of Ethiopia's Tadesi Woku, who came in second in 27 minutes, 43 seconds, while Kibuot Kandi sealed the podium position in 27 minutes, 57 seconds. Kip Curry's win saw him break the course record set by another Kenyan, Geoffrey Kamauro, in 27 minutes, 44 seconds in 2014. In tennis news, Tunisian Ons Jabor was bitten by Iga Swatek 6-2-6-2 to retain her Italian Open title on Sunday and claim her fifth tournament crown in a row. Jabor had come into her first room final on a roasting furrow Italico center court on the back of two thrilling comeback wins over Dara Kasitikina and Maria Sakari. And that's it on Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, Jackson, in Washington. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voanews.com. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington, wishing you a great week ahead, Africa.